The following message was recorded at Beth Zion Messianic Synagogue in Jackson, New Jersey. Join us every Saturday and learn to see the truth of Messiah through Jewish eyes. Today's portion is called Mishpatim, Rulings, and it's part of the continuation of what Moses said to the people as they came out of Egypt, as they were there before the mountain, as they saw the smoke and the fire and the flashes of light and all of that. And as God spoke to them, and they said, we'll listen to you, Moses. Tell us what he says, but whatever he says, we'll do. And he goes on to talk in this section about more things. This is before he went up for 40 days into the mountain. This is before he brought back the tablets the first time. This is before they had the full measure of the Torah instruction. And yet, what you see described here are the foundational basis for all of the instructions that God was giving to him that was going to be written out in the Torah and spelled out for them. But they did hear this already, so it's always, uh, you know, they say ignorance of the law is no excuse. (laughs) They can't say that, well, we didn't have the tablets yet. We didn't have the Ten Commandments. We didn't have the Torah, because in last week's portion, he spelled out what the Ten Commandments were. And he spelled out not to have idols of gold and of silver. He spelled this out beforehand so they knew. And in less than 40 days, they were off and running off after everything different than they said they would do. They said, we'll do what he says, but they got nervous. They got scared because Moses wasn't coming back so quickly, and they weren't sure how he was long he was going to be. And they said, give us gods. And they called the golden calf. I'm getting ahead of myself. But they called the golden calf the God who delivered them out of Egypt. How distorted things can get when we don't fully understand the balance of what God's word is saying. And so in this portion here, he gave other instructions. He talks about subjects that you would normally not even think of. Here's people coming out of slavery. He's talking to them in chapter 21 about kidnapping. Talking about, here's a good one. I I, I like this one. Here we go. Somebody mentioned before about their kids. Listen to this. He says this in the portion in chapter 21, uh, verse 15, he said, whoever attacks his father and mother must be put to death. Wow. Talk about rebellious children. Verse 17, he says again, 16, he says, whoever kidnaps somebody must be put to death. Verse 17, whoever curses his father and mother must be put to death. Now, I don't think there was any place that we have an example of where they actually put them to death. But they were, God was wanting to make clear to them that when there is a breakdown in the fabric of the family and of the community, everything is downhill from there. And so, in a way, when someone curses their father and mother, when somebody shows hatred towards them, when people are fighting among themselves and all of this, and the disruption brings about death in the community. It brings about a death to social 
fabric within the community. These are important things to consider. And he goes into all of these different things. It's where he says later on, if anyone harmed, uh, uh, if any harm follows, it says, give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. He's saying that here is the importance of having not so much to look and say, well, they took my eye, so I have to take their eye out. There was room for mercy. There was room for having adjudication. There was justice that was there. And so you didn't just simply say, somebody knocked my eye out, so we have to take his eye out. There was a trial. There was evidence. There were witnesses. And they would bring about and come to a determination. They might say, the judge might say, you know, first offense. He didn't do it on purpose. Seems like it was an accident and not the violation or the just judgment to be poured out. It isn't a guarantee that they had to do this, but it was the limit of what they could do. I mean, in those days, when somebody stole a loaf of bread, they cut off their hand. In those days, if somebody did something, they took their life away. This was saying measure for measure, that there is a balance, there is an equal justice in the process of the judicial system. And so the title for today is The Truth About Equal Justice. Now, I know that that can conjure up all kinds of political images. And we're seeing in our time where when you compromise, the system that was set up here was God was establishing a foundation for the community, how to deal with different issues when they came up, how to address these different things. A thief caught in the act of breaking in and beat somebody to is not murder unless it happens after sunrise, in which case it is murder. And then it says a thief must make restitution, so he, so if he has nothing, he himself is to be sold and made to make good on his debt. Uh, it says if he stole something and it's found alive, he's to pay double. Now, you say all of these little descriptions, these rulings, it's not just rulings. When you look at what he was establishing, here was a nation that had no boundaries. Well, they did have boundaries. The boundaries were set up by their masters. The boundaries were set up by their taskmasters. The boundaries were set up by you have no rights and nothing of your own. So liberty and freedom could be a cause for somebody to go out and think they could do everything they want now, anything they want now. And God says, no, there are boundaries to what freedom and liberty brings. There, are, there is a structural foundation that needs to be in place so that it doesn't become absolute chaos. Later on, we read in the book of Judges where it says, every man did that which was right in his own sight. And all of the negative spiraling down that took place was evident, and it was because everybody had their own rule. Everybody had their own idea. Now, when we look at what was happening here, he was laying out these things. Uh, you know, there's a passage also in here uh, that says in verse 20 of chapter 22 uh, and 21, depending on which version you have. It says, you must 
neither wrong nor oppress a foreigner living among you. For you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. Now you look at this and you say, hey, that's applicable today too. We let people come in. Let everybody come in. But what it's speaking about here is an aspect that often people don't recognize when they pull things out of context. He said, you must neither wrong nor oppress a foreigner living among you. Now, living among you doesn't just mean that they took up residence and continue to do whatever their lifestyle is, but they choose to align themselves with the community that they were joining. And in fact, in one place, he says shortly afterwards, um, he says, you are not to curse God, you are not to curse the leader of the people. You are, uh, he said, uh, therefore you're not to eat. Okay, I'll tell you what, I, I can't find the verse right now, but in here, what he does say to them is that if somebody coming in is bringing something from outside that is going to corrupt the system and the nation, then it needs to be addressed. The whole idea of addressing foreigners coming into Israel was that they were choosing to become a part of the community, and as such, all of the rules and all of the law and all of these things were applicable if they were going to live among them. They didn't just come in and do whatever it was they learned from where they were and continue to sacrifice to their gods. In fact, he mentions that too. Uh, he mentioned about uh, not sacrificing to, where is it? Anyone who sacrificed to any God other than Hashem alone is to be completely destroyed. Then says, you must neither wrong nor oppress a foreigner. What does that tell you? That tells you that if a foreigner is bringing in something contrary to God's community and God's word, you don't just simply say, let them do what they want to do. Okay? I'm just giving this as this is not... Uh, he also says another thing in here. You are not to permit a sorcerer to live. You say, yeah, but for my background, uh, tarot cards and everything else, this is just my cultural identity. No, no. It is contrary to the rules of the house. It's contrary to what God is saying. And he's telling them this not because he's trying to take away their fun or downplay their culture. He's saying it because he wants to establish a community in which he is able to make himself known and bring to the people a, a level of restoration that they have never known outside of him. And so he wants to make this a place where people can be able to grow and increase. So when we say the truth about equal justice, you know, even today, we, have, we can think of things in history. Um, we have a lot of things going on where people have, in some ways, turned around the mindset of the rules of the nation, so to speak. It is said clearly that a man is innocent until proven guilty. And yet, there is a mindset in our country at different points where we turn it around and say, 
You are guilty. Look at what's there. Prove that you're innocent. That is the opposite of what our Constitution teaches. In the similar way, when people look at the Word of God and look at the commands of God and find justification, as we say with the golden calf, to say, this is the God who delivered us out of Egypt. The image of the God that was destroyed is now the image of the God that delivered them from what was destroyed? You lose, people lose a sense of reason when we begin to go down and shift outside of the boundaries that God's laid out in his word. And so when we talk about equal justice, he does speak about this, and I, I want to get to these things as quickly as I can here. In chapter 23, which is the main thrust, I didn't mean to go into all the detail about the other stuff there, but it sets up for this and also for what we see in the book of Yaakov and James. But he says, you are not to repeat false rumors. Do not Join hands with the wicked by offering perjured testimony. Do not follow the crowd when it does what is wrong and don't allow a popular view to sway you in offering testimony for any cause if the effect will be to pervert justice. On the other hand, don't favor a person's lawsuit simply because he is poor. He also says later on in there, uh, again, with regards to... Uh, the foreigners and oppress. He says, you are not to, in verse 9 of chapter 23, you are not to oppress a foreigner, for you know how a foreigner feels since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. And he says, too, he says, pay attention to everyone, verse 13, pay attention to everything I said to you. Do not invoke the name of other gods or even let them be heard crossing your lips. Now, you can look at the different mindsets that people have, and what he was saying was not to oppress a foreigner, but not to allow even the names of their gods to be on your lips. This is an important thing to consider because while it's all-inclusive, it's inclusive within the framework of what God sets up as the boundary. Now, this was in many ways a theocratic nation, when you're in a country like ours, we have a mix of people from all different backgrounds. There is not a national religion, but there are laws. And so what we look at is what are the laws? You know, when you have a, uh, a charter as a congregation, when you have your bylaws, the bylaws may vary between different congregations, different denominations and such. But you know what the judge looks at if somebody brings a case against the congregation they look at your bylaws he looks at the bylaws and if you violate the bylaws you're guilty if your bylaws cover these things and it's in the bylaws it's not an issue because it's declared and the foundation the boundaries are set in place so it's a, it, it it's something that is important that if our country, for instance, has laws, those are the laws. If there's a challenge to those things, you challenge them through the avenues that are laid out within the framework that's there, similar to what the Torah speaks about. And these things can be addressed. 
But there is something about keeping the unity and keeping things together. If there is a compromise when it comes to judicial things, what happens is everybody does that which is right in his own eyes. Now, somebody may bring up something and say, you know, I don't think it's fair for this thing or that thing. And somebody, they say, I agree. We should just disregard the law on that and go with this. But then somebody else comes along and says, well, I don't have a problem with that, but not going as far as this. And somebody says, yeah, but this is also okay. Well, not to me. Now you have a crazy chaos because everybody has a law unto themselves. That's where it breaks down. It isn't the restrictions that law brings. It is the, found, the, the boundaries that allows people to understand how to work within the community. Now, it works in a number of ways also. I want to quickly go over here to, uh, to the passage in, um, in Yaakov. Let me just see if there was... Uh, uh, well, yeah, the, the verse I mentioned before, verse 24 of 23 says, You are not to worship their gods, serve them, or follow their practices. Rather, you are to demolish them completely and smash their standing stones to pieces. You are to serve Hashem, your God, and he will bless your food and your water. I will take sickness away from among you and all of these blessings that are there that he speaks of. So we go over to the passage in Yaakov. And what we found is that it mentioned the gifts that come from God. He says, for a person's anger, verse 20 of chapter 1 of Yaakov, James, for a person's anger does not accomplish God's purpose or God's righteousness. Just before he said, therefore, my dear brothers, let every person be quick to listen, but slow to speak and slow to get angry. You know, one of the things that happens is that when people have an agenda, whether it's an individual purpose agenda, whether it's a congregational agenda, whether it's a doctrinal agenda, whether it's a political agenda, when that becomes the single focal point, anything opposing that point becomes the object of anger, the object of offense. And so what happens is, the, uh, we, we think that in arguing our point, we will convince everybody to do the way we see it. And I mentioned before, I have that one song on my last album that says, change from the inside out. And, you know, it says, everybody says they want change. What they really mean is change the other guy. And I can't seem to change any, so Lord, just come and change me. When we begin to allow God to change us, we begin to have a new level of influence. It's within the framework of what God's word says, and we're not worried about who's not doing it exactly right, but we walk in a manner that is honoring to God, following his word, giving people room to find transformation in their lives, giving people the same amount of room that God gave us. It's funny, when Marlene was praying before and said to remove all these... There is that sense. I understand that. When you see things happening that are degrading, when you see the things that are being as an assault on our children in school, the things that are, going to, that, that are man, they're mandating to teach, 
you can get infuriated. You can be disgusted by it. It's, it's a problem. So you approach it in the structure that exists and you speak up. You maybe run for office to be able to address it in that arena. But when we say get rid of them all, we put ourselves in a position of doing the very same thing. Because in a way, it's like that quote I often mention. First, people want tolerance. Then they want acceptance. Then they want dominance. And then they want no tolerance. And oftentimes what happens is you say, you have to give us place to do and be what we want to be. After all, the Bible says, welcome foreigners. Now, I'm using that in a general sense. I'm not talking about everybody coming up from Mexico or South America. I'm not talking about, I'm saying, however you view, the, the understanding is this, that people coming into a community, come into a community to add to the framework within the boundaries of that community. And so, what happens is people come in, and you have a couple things happening. There's always going to be cultural difference, especially in our country. You're going to have cultural differences. It's not like Israel, but we have structure. So when we talk about equal justice, we had the picture before, you know, of Lady Justice with the blindfold and the scale. Now, it doesn't mean that she can't see. It means that she's not open to a bribe. She's not showing favoritism. She is being honest in the weight of that. There's a place where it says not to have two sets of scales. That was one of the things that's in, in the injunction in Torah, not to have two sets of scales, one for one group, one for another group. When we look at this um, in the book of Yaakov, um, there is also in chapter 2 where he says, My brothers, practice the faith of our Lord Yeshua, the glorious Messiah, without showing favoritism. And he says, Suppose a man comes into your synagogue wearing a gold ring and fancy clothes, and also a poor man comes in dressed in rags. If you show more respect to the man wearing the fancy clothes and say to him, Have this good seed here, while the poor man, you say, uh, you say, stand over there or sit down in front as a footstool for this guy, then aren't you creating distinctions among yourselves and haven't you made yourselves into judges with evil motives? And so he brings into this this idea that there is equal justice. On the one hand, he says, don't show favoritism to those who dress fancy and have financial uh, security. But he also says in another place, don't give deference just because someone's poor. He's saying equal justice. Why is it that we see, for instance, in some communities where people of a different complexion are stopped for situations that other people aren't? It doesn't seem like equal justice. Why is it that you could have one person being brought to court on lying, and one group with a position in one way is let off, and the other gets five years. Why is it that somebody who violates 
whatever law, the one group gets off with a hand on the slap on the wrist and says, don't do it again. And the other goes to jail for 10 years. There's not equal justice. Because what ends up happening is people then allow their personal idea of what's right to determine the justice meted out. And so what happens is there's unequal justice. And when there's unequal justice, the whole structure of a judicial system collapses because there's no reference point that you can hold to. The boundaries have been blurred. If that happens in the natural, how much more in the spiritual? How much more when we give room for allowing our little idiosyncrasy that I'm sure God winks at and it's not a big deal, but doesn't he also say a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And here's the part that is so insidious about this. When we blur the boundaries, whether it's in the political arena or whether it's in our personal life or our interaction within a congregation, we lose sight of reality. And our ability to reason shifts because now we have to stay up with what we put in as a what do you call it? As a spin on it. We have to remember what that spin was. Otherwise, when it comes to somebody else, we say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. But aren't you doing that? Well, that's different. I'm more spiritual, and God gives me room for that. Don't attack me. <laughs> but we'll tell somebody else what's wrong and be guilty of the very same thing. It's actually not a political system or team, but it is a human trait that needs to be constantly, something we have to be constantly on guard against because we're easily sucked into it. You know, it's interesting in here he says, uh, he says, then aren't you creating, in, in James 2, chapter, verse 4, he says, Aren't you creating distinctions among yourselves? And haven't you made yourself into judges with evil motives? Their ability to rationally discuss it has disappeared. And then he says, listen, my dear brothers, hasn't God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and to receive the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you despise the poor. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Now, somebody might look at this verse and say, so what it's saying in the Bible is that rich people are bad and poor people receive the kingdom. Sounds like he's saying that. But he's not saying that when you look at the full context. He's saying this may be a factor, but don't give deference just because they're poor either. Justice has to be equal. It has to be measured out. And here's the thing. It says, Aren't they the, okay, it says, if you truly attain the goal of the kingdom Torah, of kingdom Torah, in conformity with the passage that says, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, your actions constitute sin. Since you are convicted under the Torah as a transgressor. Now, when you look at, he quotes also from last week's portion, he says, don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Don't murder. 
Do you and he's saying here, it says, um, uh, he says in verse 10, for a person who keeps the whole Torah, yet stumbles at one point, has become guilty of breaking them all. So what does that mean? If you break one law, you're guilty of them all? I'll tell you what it breaks down to in simple terms. If you get caught for a traffic violation, it doesn't mean you're guilty of murder. It doesn't mean you're guilty of adultery. It doesn't mean... But you are guilty of breaking the law. You broke the whole law because that part of it was part of the whole law. So when you broke the law, you broke the whole law. It doesn't mean that if you have an infringement on one, you're now guilty of all the other laws, but you broke, collectively, you broke the law. So he says this. Now, I, I want to just mention this, too. I've mentioned this before, but just for a moment, when you look at the passage that says to love your neighbor as yourself, I can't help but mention this every time I come to that verse. Uh, in Leviticus 10, no, in Leviticus, hold on, in Leviticus 19, it says, don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against any one of your any of your people, rather love your neighbor as yourself. I always like to read the first part of this because it sets up this concept also of equal justice. We can't be showing favoritism. What ends up happening is when we do show favoritism, we actually distort the truth. And when we do that, we then become in lockstep with whatever our agenda is, and usually we become angry about anyone who opposes it, whether it's right or left, or in the middle, whatever. <laughs> the point is, we have to be vigilant in the kingdom of God to follow God's pattern that he lays out so that we don't show favoritism. If you have an issue that comes up and you disagree, speak against that issue, but don't label everybody as the boogeyman or as whatever. Deal with the issue, not with the person. Deal with the issue. And what does he say here? He says, here's the context for love your neighbor as yourself. And like we've said before, people often will say, well, you remember, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does that mean? To a lot of people, they think that means let your neighbor do whatever he wants, which isn't what it's saying. Listen to what it says here. It says, do not speak a curse against a deaf person or place an obstacle in the way of a blind person. Now, you might say, if the deaf person can't hear the curse, what's the point? What's wrong with saying the curse? of it? Because it coming out of your mouth has compromised the foundation and the boundaries set by God's word. And then when it says, don't put an obstacle in the way of a blind person, um, they don't see it. But it's already starting to break up things in the community. It says, fear your God. He says, I am Hashem. He says, do not be unjust in judging. To be unjust in judging is to have a skewed view of justice, to have unequal justice. And he says, do not be unjust in judging. Show neither partiality to the poor 
nor deference to the mighty. But with justice judge your neighbor. Do not go around spreading slander among your people. But also, don't stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. You see, when we talk about Lashon Hara, the evil tongue, we don't look to undermine the character with character assassination. But if something is happening and somebody's life is at stake, we are not to be silent. Just like the man who said, if your enemy's donkey is in a ditch and under the weight of, that it's carrying, you're not allowed to walk past that, but you have to help your enemy get that animal out of the ditch. There is something that goes beyond the personal disdain for that other person. But that doesn't seem to be anything people think about today, it does it. Everybody labels the other, and everybody jumps into it. He says, do not go around slandering, and don't stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you won't carry sin because of him. That element of, of, of unequal justice that element that is partial and that shows favoritism puts us in a position of taking sides instead of allowing real justice to take place. If somebody murdered under the same circumstances and the same details, it seems like the justice should be the same. If there were other factors that were different, each is judged by those factors, but not by whether they have money or whether they're poor. It's judged by what the infringement is and what the law says. You following me? So, what I notice is he says, don't hate your brother. The one thing that we see is that when we do have this skewing of justice, it affects our emotional state, and we find ourselves lashing out, arguing, or angry. And as I mentioned before, when, angry, when anger levels rise, sound reason disappears. Our ability to reason goes away, and we do not use the reference for what God's Word says or what law states. But instead, what we do is we go by what is right in our own mind, in our own sight. And so if it's not, we say, look, it says, if they bring in idols, wipe them out. Listen, the differences people have are not the same as wiping out idols, okay? We want to follow, as I mentioned, I thought I'd get by this message without mentioning this verse, but I seem to mention it every week. He says, if you see someone overtaken at a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Tempted to do what? To do what they did? No. Tempted to skew justice. Tempted to view it in a way that labels them as out of the circulation, out of the place to receive your heart to restore. We find ourselves then justifying our bad behavior because it's not as bad as what they're doing. And if you find that somebody raises an issue for either towards you or towards somebody that you are following in some manner, 
if your first answer is, yeah, but what about when you did this? You're already skewing justice because it isn't a matter of what the other one did or didn't do, but evaluating what you did, if it was within the framework or not in the framework. But when we toss it out and say, yes, but what about this? Or, oh, you're just complaining. <laughs> and you say, and I can't stand complainers. I get so fed up with complainers. I just think we should get eliminated. It's like you're complaining, but you're telling them that their complaining is wrong. See, but your complaining is right because it's justified and righteous, right? People who think they're right don't get angry. They have righteous indignation, they call it. But righteous indignation is a nice way of saying that they allow themselves room to be angry and lose control. We have to look at it. God can have righteous indignation. We don't have the capacity to, to really discern it correctly all the time. And so he says, be angry and sin not. He says, don't let the wrath, the, 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 the sun go down upon your wrath. Uh, he says also, be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We were saying it the other day that if you find yourself lashing out immediately with a defensive position, try this first. Don't verbalize it. Because the moment you ver and step back and think about what's going on and get a perspective, because the moment you verbalize it, you have now unleashed for everything else to flow without any restraint. And where there is no vision, the people are without restraint. This is why we have to keep our vision clear, why we have to keep our hearts pure before God, why we have to always come before him and see where we stand so that we're not finding ourselves in a position of slandering, but of finding the balance. And you know, when you go to places like the Beatitudes, when you look at Matthew 5, and you see in there the same thing, he says about, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say if you hate someone in your heart, You've committed it already. Was he saying that hating somebody is the same as murder? Not exactly, but he was following a Jewish way of understanding that when you hate someone, you are murdering and undermining their character. And it will eventually lead to murder. It can. When he brings these up, he always went to the heart of the issue. So somebody might say, well, I've tried to keep all those things in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's really hard. The problem is God didn't write those things there for us to try and work at it to do it better. He provides through Messiah and through his death and his resurrection, through the empowerment of his spirit, he gives us the ability to do what we cannot fully accomplish on our own. And so when we look at it, we may give ourselves unequal justice. We say, ah, I've tried so hard, I just can't seem to do it. He's not saying give up and change the rules. He's saying submit to God, and God will draw near to you. Resist the enemy, and he'll flee from you. It's why he tells them over and over again, don't go back to the old nature. 
Why? Because he knows that human beings are susceptible to be drawn back into what held them bound before. And what is the safeguard? The safeguard is knowing the boundaries. The safeguard is yielding to the Spirit of God that guides us through this, that leads us and guides us into all truth, gives us the ability to look beyond where somebody in their arrogance might say something. And I've mentioned this before, but think about this. If we were living at the time when Stephen was stoned and people looked at Paul and he was the instigator and condoning it and in charge, he was arresting people, he was causing them to be killed, all these different things, I would say that there was somebody out there who probably prayed, take him out. I'm not saying it's against you, honey. I'm just saying this idea, you know, when you say take them out, like he's doing wrong, he's hurting the kingdom, he's doing, get rid of him, he has to be removed, he has to be taken away. Isn't it interesting that over the period of time, a revelation from God that threw him to the ground, blinded him temporarily, that this man became the emissary, Paul, Rav Shaul, that he moved from a place of destruction in the, and in describing what he did, it was righteous. He was stopping these people from distorting Judaism in his own mind. But when he had an encounter with Messiah, it changed his understanding. And he realized that it wasn't equal justice. He was living with an agenda that established his own righteousness based on the fact of the accolades that he had from everybody else. And he said, all of these things I did, whatever it was, he says, I count them as refuse, as dung, in contrast to the excellency of knowing Messiah, of knowing him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. He came to terms with being equalized by God, of coming into a place of balance, of finding out how to stay within the parameters of what God says. And just like it says of Yeshua, that he did what he saw the Father doing. Paul lived his life in the Spirit and said, whether I have or I don't have, I've learned in every place to be content. But this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and reaching for what's ahead, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God and Messiah Yeshua. Everything he said is in union with him. And that's why he focused on developing that union with him. If we are going to figure out how to walk in the instruction of the Lord, it doesn't mean we do it on our own. It means that God's made available for us the avenue to keep the parameters clear to know that the boundaries are not blurred, that the Spirit of God will bring conviction, that the Spirit of God will lead us and guide us into all truth. When we go to one hand or to the other, we'll say, this is the word. This is the word. Don't go to the right or the left. But he says, to walk in the Lord. Walk in it. When we look at these things, and, and I'm just going to mention, I'll just mention a few things, just a little thing in, in closing. When we look at things that happen in the world, 
think of what happened during the McCarthy era. They also started to say people were guilty and had to prove they were innocent. They allowed for unequal justice. They had people telling on each other so that their family would be safe. They used these as wedges. And it's interesting, we have to be careful that we are not following the same pattern. When we look at one and excuse it because they have a belief system that's like ours, or condemn because they oppose us. We have to work within the arena, we have to work within the framework and do what's right. If you want to stand for an issue, stand for it. But you're not standing for the issue when you label someone else as an enemy of the issue. Take your position. Make it known. You have a vision. The vision is yet for an appointed time. And then we'll speak in that lie. Though it tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not tarry. He's telling, take the vision, run, write it, and make it clear. So whoever walks or runs can see and understand there's clear boundaries. We set these things in motion, and God transforms us. There is so much that can be said. There are other places I'm not going to go into now. We'll, we'll, we'll probably talk more on these things as we go through the Scripture, but I want to encourage you and in case you're thinking I'm just making political statements, I am not. I want to make it clear. When I mention these things, I may bring up specific issues. But I'm talking about something that is at the very core of the survival of our soul. It's not a person who is our enemy. In some cases, we're our worst own enemy because we lose sight of the fact that it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will judge. We are called to submit to him and allow him to have his way in our lives. We are called to be reconcilers. We are called to be restorers of the breach. We are called to be restorers of the nation, to see God bring rivers in the streams in the rivers and desert and, and rivers in the desert land. We're to be in a place where when it looks like one thing, God says this, and we go with what God says, and we love people into the kingdom. We love people into deliverance out of the very things that have them bound. And you can't argue with somebody who's angry but you can love them into the kingdom. We can love them. And as soon as we become angry in response, nobody can speak of justice because all we do is talk about everybody else's injustice. Notice that. Nobody talks about justice. They talk about the injustice that they're doing, the enemy that they are. Where's the positive influence to transform it's not in the equation when we're outside of the boundaries of what God says. Anyway, Lord, we thank you for this time and your word and your promises. We thank you that the truth about equal justice is that we can't always discern the difference 
but you are the one who comes into our lives to make your presence known and to give us direction and understanding and insight to walk in the manner that is pleasing to you, that your word is as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that you provide opportunity for us to hear by your spirit what you have said and make it alive in us. You bring to our remembrance whatsoever you said. And what you said, we said, will follow. But let us not be distracted by our emotions and by our feelings and by our old nature and by the influence of others, but to actually walk in a manner that is upright and with true justice, knowing that you, Lord, are the judge of all, that you are the one who calls us into the battlefield, into the places of the workplace, the marketplace, to be able to be an influencer in the groups and the people we come in contact with, to be a light in the middle of darkness, not creating a new level of darkness to fight darkness. But Lord, give us insight. Give us intimacy with you. Give us that inner life of your presence leading and guiding us into all truth, just as you gave Yeshua the ability to see and do what he saw the Father doing. And Paul chose to do the same. And Stephen, while being stoned, said, don't hold us to their charge. He saw beyond their anger and beyond the fierceness of their positions. And I believe that even his response may have been one of the factors that eventually worked its way down to draw Paul into that place of intimacy with you, Lord. Help us to be repairers of the breach and not contributing to toppling all that you have called us to walk in. Thank you, Lord, for Messiah being the one who makes it all happen and for giving us everything necessary to complete our need in you. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about Beth Zion, please visit our website at www.bethzion.org.